Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my guest this week is Simon Reed, who both adapted and directed Private Peaceful, a one-man show based on the book by Michael Morporgo, who also wrote War Horse, another story set against the backdrop of World War One. Private Peaceful is playing at the Barrow Group's TBG main stage through October 7th. Hello, Simon Reed. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for for doing this, and all the way from from England, and in the midst of uh, of rehearsing another show, we really appreciate it. Not uh, at all. I'm so pleased to be able to talk about private people. Well, we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to ask you to tell listeners what private peaceful is about. Whew. Well, private peaceful <laughs> is the story of a young boy who grows up before the First World War over a hundred years ago. And he has no idea that there is war on the horizon, and it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, a, a piece where um, yeah, it's a rite of passage story, really, about he falls in love, his father gets uh, killed, there's a spoiler alert, sorry, uh, his father <laughs> gets killed in the, in the, in the forest, because he, he's a forester. He goes through all these kind of extreme passions and experiences of life growing up in, in rural part of England, and then the war happens. And then, as an underage soldier, he is uh, seduced, really, into going off and fighting um, in the war. And that's where this young boy um, goes on a further journey and turns into a man and starts to see the injustices of of war and and what it all meant fighting on the front line. This was... um Originally, a book by Michael Morporgo, who I think um, a lot of our listeners will know, uh, was the author of the book uh, War Horse. And um, you adapted this, if I understand it, you adapted Private Peaceful three years before uh, War Horse. Um, and I'm, so I'm just wondering, what made you want to turn this book into a play? Yeah, I mean, Michael is a very prolific writer. Um, he had, uh, War Horse actually was written many years, 20 years, I think, before uh, Private Peaceful. By the time he published Private Peaceful, he'd written over 100 books. Oh, my and I'd gosh. And I've been a great, a great fan of his um, always. And so um, the, the reason that I wanted to adapt this book into a play is, uh, quite simply, I heard Michael reading it on the radio, actually, and he read the opening lines five past ten, I had the whole night ahead of me. I won't sleep, I won't dream it away. I've had more than 18 years of yesterdays and tomorrows, and tonight more than any other night of my life, I want to feel alive. And it was in that moment I thought, this is a fantastic uh, monologue, it's a fantastic story that someone is on the last night of their life is reliving everything that has brought them to this place. There is a ticking clock. Uh, it's a, it's a, a very brilliant piece of drama that obeys the unities, in a sense. Um, it's all conjured up out of this young man's um, imagination. Um, and I just thought, what a, what a wonderful piece of theatre this could make. On top of which, I have to say that obviously the political aspects um, of, of this kind of story and the um, anger, I guess, that fueled um, Michael in uh, wanting to write uh, this sort of story and, and provide entertainment through this story and education through this story in the best sense. It sort of, it chimed with 
how I felt about I, I had at the time my children were young um, I was appalled at the idea that that people that were my own kids age um, had, had gone off to war and it just sort of it touched a raw nerve I don't know what it is in theatre but you know what it's like when you go and see something and you start to intellectualise it actually sometimes it's just something instinctive that mm. excites you about about watching it and certainly excites me about making it you um turned this into a one-man show and did you know right away that it was going to be a monologue did you consider other approaches well the 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 truest way to uh, do private peaceful is as a one-man show because that anyone who knows the novel uh, that is how it is written it is written that it is one man uh it, it, it all takes place in his imagination, um, and and so he, that's how how he tells his story. So that's the kind of truest way of doing it. And being very pragmatic, it was a it was a wonderful way that I can get a show on. That's a lovely thing about theatre. I, I, I work in theatre. I work in film. But nine times out of ten in theatre, things happen. Nine times out of ten in film, they don't happen. <laughs> so it's very, it was practical as much as anything else. I have also told this story though um, as a film as a uh, as a radio play, uh, mm. um, and indeed as a as a kind of fully fledged play with a cast of thousands, you know, play, playing all the roles. So, of course, these things can can exist in in, in various uh, mediums. But it was as a one man show that that's its truest essence, and that's uh, and, and it's very impressive in the theatre, especially when you've got an actor uh, like Shane O'Regan, who's just astonishing in this role. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because. Although it's one actor, it's a monologue, the actor, in essence, plays about two dozen characters. Uh, so he's obviously on stage every moment. And it's it's a virtuosic performance. And I just went, how do you find an actor to do that role? I mean, I, I know this, the, you've had this production uh, going many years and it's traveled around, but uh, how do you find it? an actor who can do this well each time you do it you have to reinvent it um and it basically has to be conjured by the the particular actor who's playing it and they have to create it um kind of in their own image in a way so although i i have done it um a number of times particularly in the uk and on tour you kind of we started again um and i went over to ireland and I went to Dublin, and I, uh, a whole load of young actors were paraded before me, and I just went through an audition process. But you feel instinctively when there's someone in the room that sets your sets you breathing faster, that that makes your heart beat faster, that just touches um, a kind of raw nerve in you, um, in the same way that the, the writing did. Um, and you just you can see the, the the spark of something and the, the energy of something and the the truth of something i suppose in an actor however i think there are a lot of actors um around who'd say yeah well i can play it it's no it's no big deal it's sort of yeah you know, um that's what we do we're all trained to play lots of different parts and of course so i have met lots and lots of brilliant people over the years and i haven't cast them who probably could have done it um as well i wouldn't say they could have done it as well as some of these actors that i've done and certainly shane is a very special uh, he's very young, but my, you know, he has a has a amazing head on 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 his shoulders. A very a wise head before before his years, 
He's terrific. He's terrific. You also uh, directed this production, and it's a very spare production. There's there's a bed that functions uh, also as sort of a dugout when they're on the battlefield, and there are a couple of pieces of, of, of clothing for the main character, Tamo. Why did you uh, design it or asked for it to be designed in that way? What did you want to get across with that spareness? Yes, I think that's, um, well, a couple of things, really. One, that it's, again, it's true to the story that this guy is effectively in a prison cell and all he has Mm. is the bed that he's lying down in and the clothes that he's standing up in. And I wanted to remain with the truth of that and just see how inventive uh, we could be, you know, the director and and, and the actor um, together and take us on all these amazing journeys. But... It's also, it's partly sort of the aesthetic of it, is that we're so used to theatre that chucks everything but the kitchen sink, <laughs> and sometimes even the kitchen sink at it, um, and it has, you know, so many effects, and it's a bit like when we watch films now that we don't even, you know, we don't really notice the CGI anymore, and because it, it, we're just satiated with all this stuff. And what I love about theatre is that you really can strip it back to its bare bones. And just discover what you what is absolutely essential to tell a story. And in the end, to tell a story, you just need a good story. You don't need all the other paraphernalia that that goes with it. And so, I, I think it, it was a sort of childlike curiosity um, and way of getting back to you know how you invent things when you're young and you're little, and you you sit in the back backyard, or you sit on your stoop, or you sit in your bedroom, and you lay under your bed and you imagine you're in a castle or you're in a dungeon or <laughs> there's your imaginary friend next to you and you and all of this ha- and in a way that's what it was like it was it was about this little boy making up some stories and, and conjuring all these people I mean you said he played two dozen people he actually played nearly four dozen people <laughs> that was so amazing I counted it the other day as I was not you know as I was watching the performance I thought golly there, there really are a lot of people in this I mean obviously there are about two dozen main characters but mm-hmm. there are lots of tiny little bit parts as well um, you made one major departure from the book and I'm not going to spoil it for our listeners yeah. so I'm wondering if it's possible for you to talk about your thought process in making that change without spoiling it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this often happens um, with book adaptations, which I've done a number of them, not just of Michael's works, but mm-hmm. of other people as well, that um, things that work brilliantly um, as a literary conceit and on the page and in that kind of one-on-one relationship with the, with the reader don't always... Uh, translate um into the into the theater and so you do have to but uh, you know you often have to have to make changes to, to do with the sort of the the kind of rules of drama or the fact that suddenly there's somebody uh, live on stage and you can see what they're doing not just imagine what they're doing or, or whatever and there was a particular moment in the in the book towards the end that makes perfect sense if you've got a cast of thousands or you're doing it in the movie or you're reading the book that I just felt that in in the context of a one-man show you it, it might feel it, it sort of it might feel cheated because at the last minute you know mm. in, in the book there's a, there, there's a twist and you and you which which is which is fine and brilliant and I said to Michael at the time I thought it was one, a wonderful thing to do in the book but I didn't want us to feel that it was a tricksy piece of theatre and we'd had our um, 
we'd been emotionally manipulated, I guess. If, if you, if you, so if you do that trick in theatre in a one-man show, my view at the time, and, and it still is, is that, is, is that it wouldn't work as well as it works in all these other forms. However, what I didn't realise when I first said this to Michael is this book would become so popular that so many people, <laughs> they arrive and they know, they've read the book, so they know what Michael's original en- ending is. And so there's something else that goes on, which is that suddenly this becomes an issue, whereas in some of his other books I've adapted that maybe aren't so well known, you know, I, I might have changed something. I have to say that in, in, you, you mentioned War Horse, which is um, a brilliant mm-hmm. book, an extraordinary um, production, amazing kind of innovative use of puppets, but they've made a massive change in that. No one ever says to them, oh, you made this massive change <laughs> uh, from the book. And the massive change they made from the book is the book is narrated by a horse. <laughs> Seriously, the narrator, it, 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 people don't realise that. Go and read War Horse, it's narrated by a horse. There is, you know, in the play, they don't do that at all. And I think that's an even more massive change than I've made at the end of Private People, but no one ever asked them about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 again, without, um, without spoiling it, I, I think it's a powerful and really um, emotional uh I don't want to say satisfying because that's not exactly where this story, the intent of this story, but it, it's very, very powerful. So, um, uh, you also dramatized another one of uh, uh, of his books, at least another one that I know of, An Elephant in the Garden. And I was just wondering, what attracts you to his his work in general? I know you've done other uh, authors as well, but what attracts you uh, to more Porgo's work? Well, I think yes. I mean, what the the the, the stories that uh, that tend to attract me any anyway, whether they're mm-hmm. by Michael or, or other people, but Michael um, is the kind of a, a brilliant um, exemplar of this. Is are stories that that confront the world, confront this so-called adult world from the perspective of a child, and sometimes that child is, is, is a grown-up, and they have, but they have a childlike imagination and a child, childish, but childlike curiosity. Mm-hmm. And, it, and by seeing things through that kind of unsullied, perhaps naive worldview, you actually see the, the crazy, childish, stupid, chop-logic world that we all live in as adults. And, you know, I, I live in one at the moment where we're going through this nuts thing called Brexit, and you guys in America mm. all live in one when you're going through a nuts thing called Donald Trump. But, you know, perhaps I shouldn't say that, but it's true. Isn't it? <laughs> it's so, true. Um, <laughs> um, and, and it takes, it takes a, child, a childlike view of the world to, to be able to say, hang on a minute, and to call out um, all, all the top logic of, of going to war. You know, mm-hmm. it, we shouldn't go to war. We shouldn't kill each other. It's crazy. I mean, you know, it's a self-evident truth, and yet we continue to do it time and time again. And so I think that with what Michael does is he um, takes on some quite sometimes quite difficult subjects and quite taboo subjects. It's not that he makes them palatable, but he certainly uh, he, he tells them in a kind of no-holds-barred way, not just for young people, mm-hmm. although that is his primary um, audience, but in the case of particularly the like Private Peaceful, for, for, for adults and for that kind of crossover uh, audience or, 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 or readership, that means that we as as adults um, we are we are confronted with all the all, all the, the the mess and the nastiness and all the things that we do wrong. When we as we grow up, we become compromised. We lose our ideals. We 
stop being revolutionary and we start being conservative with a small C and all the things that, that go wrong <laughs> with being an adult. Um, these stories uh, reignite, I hope, our passion and our zeal uh, for, um, yeah, to sort of to see if we can change change the world, you know, and, um, and, and, and make it a better place, which sounds naive, but boy, do we need it. Absolutely. Is he, uh, does he participate in the adaptation in any way? Uh, does he collaborate in any way when you are working on one of his books? Yeah, my, I have a very, very good relationship with Michael. I have a very good personal relationship with him. I'm a very good working relationship with him. But um, really, uh, I, I always discuss what I'm going to do with his, with his books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once, once and, and his stories once I've chosen them because I often do. There are quite a few things that, uh, that that differ in that process. He's very good about kind of letting off the leash and um, uh, doing a first draft where because you can talk to Lacal's come home about you know how things work. But you actually need to demonstrate it in a script. And then he's a very good, um, astute uh, and acute script editor and he's able to say well you've missed the point here or I can see that will work in theatre or um, and so he's involved in he then gets very involved um, in the production as well actually mm. he sort of helps he helps me cast he often recognises in an audition that the person that delivers uh, the performance in the in the room won't necessarily be the person that will grow into it over the rehearsal period so he's sort of he's learned that over the years and also um, he comes to not just early previews and not just for the first nights, but he then you know, he'll come back later in the run. He's really interested in the whole process. He, huh. he likes he likes performing himself. His um, his father was an actor, and I think there's a kind of secret sort of um, it was a, a missed thing in his life that mm. he became a fantastically successful writer. But deep down, I think he would have you know, <laughs> loved to have played Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you um, also adapted uh, Private Peaceful, I think you alluded to this, for uh, a, f- a film. Did you yeah. just go back, starting from scratch, when you did that, put the play aside, now I'm going to do do something different, or how did that work for you? Yeah, I did pretty much. Um, I mean, obviously, I knew the material and the story sort of it pretty well inside out, but with the feature film, it's very different because you're... Um, you know, I, I wasn't directing it. Um, I wrote the screenplay. I, I was a producer on it, so I helped sort of put it together. But um, you're working with so many more people, and um, everybody is brilliant and skilled at their own part of the job that uh, that they do. And so I was just one of uh, of, of the cogs in this in this kind of uh, in this machine. Um, but in terms of the the story, I, I did actually yes, I did sort of throw everything away and, and start and go back to the novel mm-hmm. um, and start again because I wanted to because it, it's very it's very different you know to to put something on the screen and to put something in the uh, in the theatre. Um, I worked with a, a lovely uh, director called Pat O'Connor. Worked with some great uh, young actors who were who were starting out actually people like Jack O'Connell and George Mackay. Um, he started in that, and then you've you know continued on to, to greater things, and then some great experienced actors like Richard Griffiths and Francis de la Tour and Maxine Peake, and it was a um, yeah, it was a, it was it, it's a good film. You also did a, a version last year, a film version of Journey's End, the R.C. Sheriff um, play. That there was a revival of it here. I can't believe it, but 11 years ago. Um, and so I just wondered, what attracts you to stories about 
World War One, and not just you, but so many of us. What is it, uh, is it about that time period? Yeah, it is, it's interesting, isn't it? That, is, it, that there is it. It, it, feel, it, it feels like it's by design, not by accident. I have to say, it's slightly by accident <laughs> that Journey's End, you know, it comes along uh, hot on the heels of Private Peaceful as, as, as my next film project, but. Um, I mean, partly that for the First World War in particular was the first war that uh, really that was this massive conscript army in in, in Europe. It was for, it was not just fought in Europe; it was also fought in Mesopotamia, in modern day what became modern day Iraq, um, in the Middle East, um, against the Ottoman Empire. Um, it uh, destroyed two, three generations of, of, of men in every single, not just the cities or the towns, but the villages from the same families um, uh, across, you know, from, from every European country, not just England, not just Germany, not just France, but, but everybody w w was involved. Um, it became, as well as it spreading right throughout the Ottoman Empire and, and the Middle East, it dragged in, um, in 1917, 1918, it dragged in America. Um, it was this, it was, and, and it was a kind of, it was an unjust war in the end. It was sort of exposed through the great uh, poets and uh, through people's diaries and um, through it was one of the first war. I think it was the first war actually to, that we had film footage, photo that we actually have photographic um, evidence of what went on. It just it was all brought home as a, as a very terrible, um, terrible experience that, that everybody shared. And so I think that's what. It, it just made a profound impact on um, uh, and, and continues to do so. And obviously, in these, in now it's that you know the, the hundred years since the end of the war, right. and we're commemorating that. Um, but I think that's sort of the, that's specific to World War One. But I think what war stories do is that they, that, you know, they, they show life in extremis, and mm -hmm. they. They sh we they show what happens to humanity when it just pushes itself to the brink, and it has to step back. You have to step back from the brink because if you don't, you reach the apocalypse. And there was a I'm working on another project at the moment, very mm -hmm. interestingly, about the people who um, uh, uh, discovered um, the, the, the huge range of people that discovered um, uh, the double helix uh, of, of DNA, mm -hmm. the form. Well, a lot of those scientists who wanted to, who worked on discovering the meaning of life, about 15 years before, they'd been involved in the Manhattan Project, splitting the atom and um, making the most destructive thing the world had ever known, which could have annihilated everything, you know, mm -hmm. the H-bomb that was blasted. And it, it gave a lot of these scientists, if they didn't have nervous breakdowns, it, it, it made them have a revelation that we can't. Um, spend our our efforts on trying to destroy things. We've got to discover, you know, the meaning of making things. And in a way, I think that's what why war stories. It's not because oh, we all we're titillated by killing, or we all want to uh, get a gun and run around and pretend we're shooting people. Or anything. I think it's actually we're so horrified at, at our own behaviour um, in, in this extreme that um, it takes us on an incredible emotional journey and we step back from it and we it's actually peculiarly life-affirming in the end because you think, you know, there but for the grace of God mm. go I. It, could you tell us the name of this new, new play and, and where and I, when it's going I to be done? Possibly, because it's, 
it's not even commissioned yet. It's just oh. something I'm developing. <laughs> but it's just I happen to be reading around this subject. So, um, well, we'll we'll, we'll keep yeah. our fingers crossed <laughs> that 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 it works out. That we get to see it here. In the meantime, um, very grateful that we get the chance to see this really lovely production of, of Private Peaceful. So thank you for that, and thank you for talking with us about it. Thanks so much. It's been fun. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time, and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com. <laughs>